Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Dr. Michael Masters with us, Professor of Biological Anthropology at Montana Tech in Butte, Montana. He received a Ph.D. in anthropology from Ohio State University in 2009. He specialized in human evolutionary anatomy, archaeology, and biomedicine. He spent the following decade developing a broad academic background that unites the fields of anthropology, astronomy, astrobiology, and physics to examine the premise that UFOs and aliens are simply our distant human descendants returning from the future to study us in their own hominin evolutionary past. His book, Identified Flying Objects, a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomenon. Michael, first of all, great job on the book. Thank you, sir. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Tell me how an anthropologist got involved in this. Well, it actually started at at a really young age. I was only, I think I was eight years old, and, um... I came down the stairs. We had some guests over at our house. My parents had some friends over, and uh, I overheard a story of my dad talking about a UFO encounter he had um, before I was born, but he was relaying the story of this sort of glowing orb that appeared over the horizon and, and darted toward them and then kind of sat there for a little bit and shot back across and then shot straight up into the sky at this tremendous speed. And it really piqued my interest in it. And uh, not long after that, he bought the well-known book Communion by Whitley Stryber. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember very vividly, um, not long after hearing this story, um, looking up on the shelf and, and seeing that, that alien head, that very oh, yeah. humanoid. What a cover, form. huh? Spooky. Yeah, right there on the cover. And, um, yeah, I just had this sort of flash and, and, and saw this uh, kind of timeline between and an early hominin form. Obviously, I didn't know that term at the time, but sort of a chimpanzee form, a modern human, and then that alien form on the book cover. And um, I don't know, just just kind of set me on this lifelong journey to understand uh, this relationship. There's a lot of, you know, obviously common characteristics, what I now know as synapomorphies, or, you know, shared derived characteristics that you can see in you know, countless reports of of encounters that people have, abduction reports, close encounters where yeah. they actually see these beings, and um, just started to to kind of put things together and, and study it in greater detail and uh, put it all into this book. Did you go into the field of anthropology primarily to investigate the possibility that we could be descendants from extraterrestrials? That's the entire reason, yeah. I started out as a, a physics major because, you know, obviously you can't understand time travel without understanding time. That's right. Um, and the physics of time. And um, I don't know, about about halfway through my undergraduate career, I just I decided to kind of look at the, the evolutionary anatomy, and, you know, I was really interested in anthropology, just um, saw a lot of opportunities to travel, which has definitely proven to be true over the years. And um, yeah, no, I, I actually had a bunch of friends reach out to me from, you know, one of the first weeks, our freshman year in the dorms, saying, oh my God, I remember you talking about this, and a huh. you know, group of people just sitting around, that's, that's why I was there, and um, yeah, it's, I, I wanted to wait until I really was able to, you know, not just to communicate this to people that have an interest in it, but to communicate it with my scientific colleagues as well. Was your PhD thesis uh, on on this, or did you have to play it safe? Um, no, my PhD thesis uh, looked at long-term evolutionary changes in 
common in craniofacial anatomy, so uh, evolution of the brain. Um, and, and two of the main trade-offs, two of the main trends in hominin evolution are an increase in brain size um, and a reduction in the face. Those two can't exist together. You couldn't put you know, a, a camper trailer on top of a Corvette and expect it to still work. So as our brains have gotten bigger, our faces have gotten out of the way. And there's a lot of cultural things that have gone into that, agriculture, being able to process foods that relaxed selective pressure on our teeth uh, that allowed them to get smaller as well as our chewing muscles. And our brains have clearly, you know, we benefit from those getting bigger over time too. Um, so, so no, I, I mostly studied those things, which are extremely relevant, to this overall investigation of, you know, what would happen if those same trends were projected forward, and looking at that, you know, it's there's a lot of a lot of evidence to suggest that we would look very much like what is so commonly reported in these abduction accounts. But, but no, I it, uh, my research is mostly uh, I use MRIs, I study vision, uh, specifically juvenile onset myopia and uh, stigmatism in the context of evolutionary changes, in the context of that increase in brain size, reduction in the face, what happens to the eyes as they grow larger in association with increased brain development? Um, how are they affected? How, how is vision affected in a functional sense? So, so there's actually a lot of overlap. You wouldn't necessarily think that, but um, I discuss you know, a lot of my, my current anthropological research in the book because it's relevant to this question. Now, you, the name of your book, of course, is Identified Flying Objects. Tell me uh, how you picked that title. Well, I'll admit it sounds a little narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> to, to say, hey, I figured this out. Look, everybody. But no, that's not. I, I discussed that in, in the first chapter, is that it's also about just the stigma that surrounds this topic and how it's been manufactured largely by scientists. I mean, it started with, with J. Allen Hynek, um, you know, with Project Sign, Project Grudge, especially mm-hmm. trying to 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 put down you know interest in this and discussion about this, and, and then he I changed. Think, then he changed his yeah, mind. Yeah, he did. Right? He did. It's it's very paradoxical yeah. if you think about it, because he he his role early on was to to discredit these people, but then as he started to understand that these people were telling the truth, he then sort of had to to, to study them and understand it while at the same time also trying to diminish what they can contribute. So, yeah, no, he had a, he had a very interesting career. Um, but, but, no, I mean, I, uh, I definitely understand that there's something going on, um, and, and the more I investigate it, the same thing has been taking place. And, and more and more people, as I speak about this openly, more people come out and tell me their story and, it's just, it's just been an amazing ride. Uh, it really is, and, and not all these people are making these stories up. No, certainly some of them are, um, but but the consistency across reports, the consistency and and the description of these these upright walking, what we call bipedal humanoid forms with you know the big heads, the small faces, the big eyes, um, you know five fingers on each hand. The alien grays, as we call them, huh? Grays, yeah, but but you know, I think honestly, we can we can look at what I dub temporal ancestry in the book. We mm-hmm. we can look at racial ancestry or geographic ancestry or what used to be known as as race, and understand these differences among humans in the context of where they evolved. You know, we have darker skin in places with high ultraviolet radiation right. because it protected them from skin cancer. Uh, you know, lighter skin because of folic acid and because of vitamin D absorption. 
So we can understand these differences today in the context of where people evolved in these geographic regions. But with that variation that's so commonly reported um, in, in these reports of close encounters may just be an aspect of temporal variation, that, that the more different they look, even some of the reptilian or the insect uh, characteristics that are reported could just be a very distant stage of human evolution in the future. And, and if you think about us going back, you know, 10,000 years into the past, we're going to look very similar to those individuals that we would be examining. You go back a million years or two million years or six million years, and we start to look very different at each subsequent stage of visiting our ancestral past. So, so honestly, you know, a, a lot of people will say, well, yes, this explains the grays, but what about these other ones? And, and honestly, I think, you know, if, if we look at the long-term history of human evolution, potentially the long future of human evolution, it could potentially explain those characteristics as well. And you're concluding primarily that these so-called extraterrestrials may be coming from the future, not some other planetary system, correct? Yeah, that's the, the primary the primary thesis. And, and like I said, you know, that's what drove me to, to go to college for this and to get a Ph.D. in this and to continue studying it and to, to merge these fields of astrobiology, physics, and astronomy with anthropology to, to get a deeper sense of this. But, um, yeah, if you, if you look at, even if you take the reports out of it, you know, a lot of people that haven't read the book say, well, this is all based on the false assumption that these things exist that this is happening. Yeah. And it's not. It's not at all, because the book mostly focuses on long-term evolutionary changes, not just in our physical form, you know, not just in the, the increased brain size and specifically increased what we call neurocranial globularity, the, the development of a, a, a more bulbous head, a more rounded balloon-shaped head in association with our smaller faces. If you look at those trends that have persisted throughout six million years of human evolution, irregardless of, you know, our geographic location or the climate or what sorts of ecological interactions we had or, or much later political, social, economic systems, those trends continued. Um, if you look at that projected forward, assuming it will continue the same way it has and the same way it's been accelerating over recent human evolution, we would look very much like these things that are reported. So it's, I don't think we should ignore anything with with a phenomenon as complex as this. I think we need to look at, at all available evidence. But the book doesn't hinge on that. It's just right. an important part of bringing in circumstantial evidence that happens to corroborate what is very hard evidence from this anthropological field. Michael, why can't you conclude that the the ETs may have come from other planetary systems uh, throughout our galaxy or universe? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... it's uh, this is where uh, the controversy comes in, huh? Well, I don't think it needs to be controversial. I mean, that is the dominant model. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the going hypothesis. It's what's been discussed. It's and it, and it makes sense too if you think about you know what everybody sees it's it's these craft coming down from the sky right. and your first right. response is going to be well clearly they came from these stars you know and you have all of the the prehistoric the historic accounts and before people knew what stars were or what the sky really was you know it makes sense why we would think that but but if you really look at not just what's happened here on our planet you know the, the things I was just describing with with our specific trajectory, but 
you also have a number of other issues. We, you know, we, t- we tend to talk about space as being this, this, this neighborhood, you know, this celestial neighborhood with these stars, and they're just right next door. But there's a vast amount of space separating these solar systems and especially separating galaxies. I mean, it's, it's immeasurable. We, we can measure it, obviously, but, but to really think about what a light year is, the distance that light travels in one year at 300,000 kilometers per second. We're talking about huge distances. And even beyond that, I mean, all of the the planets that are being discovered as part of the Kepler mission, they're almost entirely, actually I'm pretty sure every single one, is a planet that's much larger than Earth. And if 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 we do take into consideration that these, you know, aliens or extra tempestrials, as I call them in the book, are upright walking, they are bipedal just like us. Right. That characteristic is not likely to evolve on any planet even slightly larger or more dense than our own. It's extremely rare that we do it, and I discussed really? this book. You think we should be on all fours? We were for a long time. All of our primate cousins are still on all fours. Chimpanzees and gorillas walk on their knuckles. That's about as close as they've gotten to standing upright. But it's extremely rare on this planet, and most of it has to do with gravity. And I talk about the research hmm. of uh, a fellow named Bruce Latimer, who used to be the head of the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, wrote this really interesting paper called The Perils of Being Bipedal that look at how we're not even that great at it. We suffer from knee problems, back problems, foot problems, hernias, um, hemorrhoids, varicose veins, choking is a problem, sleep apnea, TMJ, uh, the vision problems that I was discussing earlier. All of these things, in one way or another, are tied to us standing upright. And, and the fact that it's so rare here, and that we still reap these benefits, despite all of the negatives that come with it, indicate that on a different planet, somewhere else, that is larger than Earth, it's going to be even less likely to, to happen there. Speculate on how far in the future these beings might be when they came back. Thousand years out, two hundred years. What do you think? I mean, you know, originally when I when I set in set set in motion to to research this, that that was the main idea is that I would create some timeline of you know that we could use maybe even like everybody, which is the hardest thing to do. It is, you know, and and there's a lot of reasons why. It's, it's difficult. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, but but one is just the variation that exists within time periods, and and we struggle with this as modern anthropologists, even looking back. The farther back you go, the less available evidence there is. We've been very lucky um, with a couple of individual specimens. Lucy is probably the best known. Um, another one, KNM WT fifteen thousand, which is a Homo erectus skeleton, very complete. But we don't know if that is representative of all of the other individuals that lived at that time. There's still the geographic variation that we see today. And back at that time, there were far more species alive uh, that would add species-wide variation. We don't have that today. We're all the same species. Um, but then you have sex variation, differences between men and women, age variation. Uh, that Homo erectus individual I mentioned earlier happened to be 11 years old. So we don't really even know what the adult form looks like. So, so to project that forward, to try to say, this is what we'll look like in 10,000 years or 20,000 years. It's, it's riddled with hitches. And, and, and the whole point of the book is to get away from speculation, to avoid mm-hmm. 
speculating about what things will happen, what will cause us to look a specific way, or you know when we'll look a specific way. So it may be disappointing to to some readers, but I I actually try not to really make any predictions. And and again, like I was saying earlier, what we see, you know, once we have this technology in the future, in the same way that we didn't stop using fire once we harnessed fire as a, a cultural tool about 1.8 million years ago. Once we have time travel technology, we aren't likely to just stop using it. So, so what we see now and in the past may actually be individuals representing different time periods in the future and giving us a snapshot of those different points in time, sort of ambassadors from from different points throughout our evolutionary future. So so that also complicates it. You know, it brings, in addition to the sex and the geographic and the age variation, it, it may very well bring temporal variation into the question as well. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.